to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to look at verses uh, 24 through 52 today as we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel. And this is the time where our uh, kids who are involved in our Kids Bridge ministry, uh, they go back at this time. There's an area where they're meeting the leaders. And uh, parents, if you have fourth or fifth graders that you signed up for that, that is where they will be uh, after the service. 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to read just verse 52 to begin our time together. And then we will look beginning at verse 24 through the rest of the chapter. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. We want to be mindful that we stand because we do believe this is the Word of God. Um, we want to immerse ourselves into the Word of God. We want to know the Word of God. And someone asked me, do you believe that God still speaks audibly? And my first response is, yes. Every time the Word of God is read, God is speaking. These are the words of Christ to his church today, and he gives them to us, and that's why we stand in honor of Christ and his word. Verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Oh God, we thank you for the grace that is in Christ. God, we are weak and we are not valiant. And yet Jesus attaches himself to us. He calls us into this glorious kingdom where he will fight for us, where he will defeat all of our enemies and we will celebrate forever and ever in a kingdom where there is no sorrow or pain. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I'm president, everyone will get extra chocolate milk at lunch, and we will have an ice cream break every day. Now, you've all heard that before. This is a classic campaign speech from the student council president that was going on at Hardison Elementary when I was in third grade. And I remember sitting there as my friend waxed eloquent on his campaign promises. It was like a scene out of Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> he would make these outlandish promises and all the kids would cheer and yell and scream and the teachers would just roll their eyes and, and this is just silly. And Believe it or not, my friend was elected as president of our little student council thing in elementary school. And believe it or not, we did not get extra milk at lunch. And there wasn't an ice cream break every day. And he was a disappointing president for us all. He could not deliver on his campaign promises. And as silly as it may sound... That's exactly what's going on in 1 Samuel. There is a king who, with his appearing, comes these great promises for Israel. They look upon Saul as this king that they want, that they have chosen. In some sense, Israel said, if we are king, 
This is what we would do. We would bring about a king who is tall and he is strong and, and he, can, he can set on a pedestal as this great warrior who defeats all of our enemies. That's what we want. We want a king like the nations, a trophy king that we can have before all of the nations where they will fear him. And as they talk about their sovereign rule that they want. You imagine God is rolling his eyes because he knows that ain't what's going to happen. Saul can't do those things. There is no man who can give you what you need as king. And yet that's what they long for. And we see these failed promises throughout 1 Samuel and it's almost silly the way Israel has longed for them. The way they have longed for them in a man. And in the last two chapters, we've seen this comparison between Saul and his son, Jonathan. And, and as the Philistines have attacked, and Israel's probably thinking, this is what we've been waiting for. We finally have our king who can defeat our enemies. We're not scared of the Philistines. But as the Philistines attack, what does Saul do? He's very passive. The people are running in fear. And Saul sitting around having worship services like there's some gimmick. But what's Jonathan doing? Jonathan and his armor bearer, one man and his right-hand guy, they travel into the mountains. And they themselves say, we will attack the Philistines on our own. Why? Because Jonathan is a man after God's own heart. God is king of his heart. Whereas Saul is king of Saul's heart. And so Saul is self-protecting. Jonathan is fighting for the Lord. And, and we saw in chapter, the first part of chapter 14, Jonathan, his very own son. And think about this. If the legacy is passed from Saul forward, who gets the kingdom? Jonathan. Jonathan, a man after God's own heart who is fighting for the Lord. And, and it's almost as if Israel is so close to the king they need, but they're not going to get him. And Jonathan begins to press the Philistines westward. And then Saul joins the fight. And the rest of Israel join the fight. And they begin to push the Philistines out of the land. But notice verse 24. And the men of Israel have become hard-pressed. They have fought and they have fought and they have fought through the hill country. And they are tired. And so they are running out of steam. And so what does Saul do, this great king? He had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And Samuel warned them this was going to happen. If you elect your own king, you bring in your own king, the king you want, he's going to be like an evil dictator and he's going to take from you. He's not going to be good to you. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Philistines are running. Israel, they become worn out. And what does Saul do? The most illogical thing he could possibly do. You will not eat until my, notice the text, my enemies are avenged. This is all about Saul. And he is demanding that, that his enemies be conquered. And to conquer his enemies, notice what he does. He makes a fast. That's the stupidest thing he could do. We're running out of steam in war. Okay, nobody eat. 
Nobody eat until this is done. We're not going home today until the job is finished. Until my enemies are avenged. And he curses the land. What is good? What is to provide blessing? What would be to give the people energy to fight? He curses it. And and he restricts it. And he restrains them from finishing the war. And we see immediately with Saul what happens in our own life. When I am king, my desires become the law. He makes the law. The law is the Philistines will die, and you will not eat until I get what I want. And how many of us live our life that way? When you are the center of the world, your desires become law. And like Saul, you will make everybody around you miserable until you get what you want. You will be pouty. You will seethe in anger until someone says, okay, what's wrong? What's wrong? I didn't get what I want. You will make demands that are harsh on other people that aren't good for them. Illogical demands like we see with Saul here. The thermostat will be at 75 degrees, period. Because I'm king, and that's the law. If my kid doesn't play shortstop, I will leave the team. If I don't get the promotion, I'm not going to work hard. Your desire becomes law, and your intent is to make everybody miserable, and people are depleted. The people are depleted here, and you deplete others in your home, in your work, in your friendships. Oh, my, no- oh my goodness, here he comes. Oh, my goodness, there he's calling. I don't want to have nothing to do with him. He, he sucks us dry of energy and joy because his desire is law. But when Jesus is king, guess what's law? Love. And you give yourself over to others. And your intent is, what do others need? I'm going to serve others because Jesus served me. His love is law despite the fact we fall short of his desires. Despite the fact we fall short of what he wants so often. And he still loves us. And you know what happens in a culture, in a context where everyone is thinking about each other first and foremost? See, we often think if I love others, I'm not going to get what I want. But in a context of community where everyone's loving one another, you get what you need, which is the love of others. Others around you are depleted. And so you love them. And you serve them. And guess what those folks are going to do for you? They're going to love you and they're going to serve you. And so it makes all the sense in the world to give. That's how the battle is won here. But Saul is taking. Notice verse 25. And when the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping Now, the language here is just intensified. You walk, imagine walking into a forest and there is honey everywhere. You're stepping in it. Where did this come from? It's falling off of the trees. The language here is to paint that kind of picture for Israel. But notice, when the people entered, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. And so the people of Israel, they're at war. They're chasing their enemies away. And all of a sudden, they walk into this forest. It's like something in Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. There's honey everywhere. 
And they're thinking, this is what we need. We are tired. We are worn out. Oh, but remember Saul? They see before them what God promised and provided. A land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they can't partake because of Saul. Notice, but Jonathan had not heard his father's charge. And the people with the oath. So they put out, he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand. And he dipped it in the honeycomb. And he put his hand to his mouth. Now that would be the most logical thing to do. This makes all the sense in the world. I'm tired, I'm worn out. Honey, yes. And he begins to taste the honey. And notice his eyes became bright. That makes sense. Verse 28, then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath. His desire was law. Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. And that probably just slipped out. Because he is worn out by Saul. Every time Saul begins to talk, something goes wrong. And Jonathan's probably thinking, everything's going good. The Philistines are running, honey everywhere, just dripping. My father, really? He has troubled, literally cursed what is good in the land. And he says, look at my eyes. See how they've become bright. I tasted a little honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of their enemies. We have chased the Philistines out of these forests. Forests, that's Tennessee. Um, <laughs> out of this forest. Forest, plural. I'll figure that out later. <laughs> and there's honey. God provided it on the ground. How much better if we had just eaten it? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. He's saying, imagine if we just lapped this honey up. We would destroy, destroy the Philistines. How much better would it have been if we would have eaten freely? And this is a statement against Saul. And he's saying, not just we would get honey if Saul would let us. He's saying, when we chose Saul as king, we restricted ourselves from God's provision, from God's goodness. And that's what happens when you choose yourself as king. You are restricting yourself from God's goodness. You see, in your life, it makes all the sense in the world that you would call the shots. Because you're the smartest person you know. But you are restricting yourself from God's goodness, from what God has provided for you. And so often in our own, our own life, when we make ourselves king and we're calling the shots, we even look at the things God has provided and we say, these things are cursed. Now, I have no time for these things that God has provided because I've got to do it my way. Think about the way people think about church and community so often. That they see what God has provided as a good thing, people to step into your life and walk with you through very, very difficult, trying times. And, and you see this, this community before you and you look upon it and you say, no, I need to do this on my own. I don't need these people telling me what to do. But when Jesus is king, you see the church as a great and glorious good provision in your life and you lap it up. 
I need more people in my life helping me, walking with me, loving with me, holding me accountable. I need this. This is a good provision in my life. But when you're the center of the world, everything revolves around you and you push others away and you say, curse it is God's blessing. I don't need it. Think about the gospel itself. Jesus dies for your sins. Jesus does it all. His righteousness And how often when you are the center, you're the king, do you look at the gospel and you say, no, no, Jesus can't do it all. I got to have some credit. I got to be good and be known as someone who's good. I've got to earn something here. I've got to have more grit, not gospel. Gospel is a curse. But when Jesus is king, you realize, no, he's the only one who deserves credit and glory. And I'm going to let him do it all. I can't pay for my sin. He did. I will not be able to raise my corpse from the ground. He is raised from the dead and promises me that will happen. He's given me eternal promises. And when he is king, you, you lap up the provision of the gospel in your life. You don't push it away. Notice the text continues. They struck down the Philistines that day. Now notice, this this is so ironic throughout. Saul is just a moron, and he keeps making stupid decisions. And then Israel just keeps moving forward. Israel just keeps moving. They have Jonathan standing for them, fighting for them, and they keep moving forward. God keeps delivering them, and they move through this hill country. And, And notice, and the people were very... Very faint. So what happens again? They're tired. They get tired again. And notice what they do this time, verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calf, and they slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with blood. Now, that was a vile sin for Israel. Blood represented life, and it was to be preserved for sacrifice. A life was to be taken for sin. This is something they were not supposed to do. And here they are acting like straight-out pagans. You have a pagan king in Saul, and he has forced them to be a pagan people who are just doing whatever they want at this point. It's chaos. Verse 33, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. And he said, notice all, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. Now, when Saul heard those words against the Lord, the first thing that should have come into his mind is chapter 13 when he forced himself upon the offering. You sinned against the Lord, Saul. And now your people are acting just like you. They've sinned against the Lord. They're violating the Lord's command. But notice what he says. You've dealt treacherously. You are a bunch of traitors. You are trespassers. But the question for Saul here is, are they betraying him or God? And he says, I'm going to fix this problem. Let's have a worship service. Bring out a stone. Let's make an altar. And he tells them in verse 34, go and get all the people and tell them to bring their ox and sheep and slaughter them here and do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. He says, I'm going to fix this culture and we're going to do it right. Let's have a worship service. Let's have burnt offerings. Let's have peace offerings. But we're not going to drink the blood because you have made me very unhappy. And you've probably made God very unhappy too. So let's do this right. So every one of the people brought his ox that night and they slaughtered them. 
And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now, he's a king. And we're going to see with other kings, they're building altars all the time, remembering the Lord. But here's Saul. Oh, yeah, God. We can't have a culture of just whatever we want. But Saul is the one who's always doing whatever he wants. Verse 36 Then Samuel said, let us go down the Philistines by night and plunder them. Saul said this, until the morning, let us not leave a man of them. So what does Saul do? Let's have a worship service. Let's have offerings. Let's go kosher. Let's do everything right. And okay, we've got it just right. Did anybody drink blood? No. Okay, let's go kill the Philistines. Notice his idol is warfare against the Philistines. And he goes through some motions And says, okay, now can I get what I want? Oh, the people are eating blood. God's never going to be with us. Stop eating blood. Let's have sacrifices. Now let's go kill them. God, can we kill them? Notice his desire is the law. Verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down at the Philistines? Please, please, please tell me I can. Tell me I can. Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But notice, he did not answer him that day. And why? We learned in chapter 13, the kingdom is already departed from Saul. There's no answer because the spirit is no longer there. Now notice something. When the spirit leaves Saul, he doesn't become less religious. When the spirit leaves Saul, he becomes more religious. When he is desperate, what does he do? Religion is a gimmick to get what I want. It's a gimmick for him. We've seen throughout, he has brought in these priests that are just around him now. He's like a crooked politician, and he says, if I can get a Christian preacher on stage with me, I'll get more votes. That's who Saul is. He's using religion for his own purposes. He constitutes a fast. He institutes kosher law. He is becoming more and more religious. He He builds an altar He probably had a plaque with the Ten Commandments on the side. Saul is becoming more and more religious, and the Spirit is nowhere near. And it's a sign you can have an in-God-we-trust religion without the Spirit of God. And it's scary because he becomes more and more religious. And it's the same thing going on with many of us here today. You were scared of hell one day, and you had some friends who were Christians And you were alone. And you said, you know what I'll do? I'll become a Christian. I'll go to church. I'll go to the campus ministry. Maybe you walked an aisle. You signed a card. You went through some motions because you thought that was going to fix your problem. And it didn't. It didn't. You were still lonely. You're still guilty. Things in your life didn't happen the way you want. And for some of you... You just got more and more religious. You thought, okay, maybe I'm not religious enough. You never really surrendered to Jesus as king. And you said, Jesus is Lord, the only one who can pay for my sins. He is king. You never did that. And so you don't have the spirit of God. And so what you're doing in your unbelief is you're becoming more and more religious. I've got to really earn this before God. And you're pumped up with self-righteousness. And and you're becoming more and more and more, not spiritual, but religious. 
because your religion is a gimmick to get God to do what, he want, what you want. And you come to God in prayer, and it's so often based on this religious credit score. Okay, I went to church this week. I said a prayer every morning. I posted a Bible verse on Instagram. Made sure to share it to Facebook. I went to the Bible study last night. I went to a Bible study again. And I really need, I really need this job. And so when you bow your head in your mind, there is this religious credit score that you hope is there and God's going to approve what you're asking for. And you become more and more and more religious and it has nothing to do with the Spirit of God, to do with what you want. And it's always been that way. But when you come before Jesus as king, it's his righteousness, not your religious gimmicks that make you acceptable before God. And it's not that you want what you want. You want the glory of Christ to be seen in your life. You want him to be known as Savior and King. And you walk with him. And, and, and your things that might be considered religious, Bible study, prayer, the, the things you do for God, they're, they're not gimmicks to use God. They are channels in which you experience the very Spirit of God that saved you and brought you to King Jesus. You're not using Jesus. But be very careful. You can be very religious without the Spirit. And you must bow to Jesus as king. Notice we continue. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders. And the people, and know and see how this sin has risen. Notice he's all of a sudden high and mighty. He's king sinner, and he's going to fix the people's sin. You guys are so sinful. Notice he says, verse 39. For as the Lord who saves Israel, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, he invokes the name of God, the, the Yahweh, the one who always does what he says. And he says, just like him, I'm going to do everything that I say I'm going to do. And even if it be Jonathan, my son, notice 39, he shall surely die. So Saul says, listen to me, whoever's done this, they're going to die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. What are they doing? They're protecting Jonathan. And then he said to Israel, you shall be on one side. And Jonathan and my son will be on the other side. What's going on? There is a split between Saul's kingdom and the people of God. And the people said to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. There's no fear in their voice. Scared of this king. I'm going to kill whoever did this. Oh, whatever, Saul. What, do whatever's good to you, man. Okay, you want us to go over here? We'll go over here. You and Jonathan go over here. Notice verse 41. And Saul said to the Lord of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? Notice it all comes back to him. Why are you not answering me? If this guilt is in me or Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give your urim. Now, Saul does not think that it's him. He doesn't understand his own sin. And he's not assuming Jonathan did anything wrong. And so he begins to cast lots. Now this was a way in which Israel and the priest determined the will of God. To say this is all of God. This is not of us. And Saul is invoking God's judgment here. The name of the Lord. And God's will here. And he says, but if your people did this, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. So who's guilty? What's well, a leadership problem? It's either Jonathan or Saul. 
And Saul said, cast lots between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said this, I tasted a little honey, the tip of the staff that was on my hand. Here I am, I will die. Now notice, Saul's words are plastic and they are empty. And nobody cares about Saul's words. He is an irate, rash, inconsistent king. Whoever did this is going to die. Oh, it's you, Jonathan? Oh, my word, son, what did you do? Oh, it's just a little honey. Get over it. Okay, you want to kill me, Saul. It's sarcasm. Okay, you want to kill me, Dad. That, that's the way this goes. And we're to read all this and see Saul's inconsistent judgment. Saul, last chapter, forced himself on the sacrifice. That's the sin that really matters here. And now he's pointing out Jonathan eating honey, which is the provision of God. It's the same thing Jesus warned us of in judging other people's sin. So often we have a telephone pole in our eye and we're looking for toothpicks in other people's eyes. Here, let me help you get that toothpick out. And that's the way judgment is so often. And, and Saul has violated the sacrifice before God. What's Jonathan's sin? He's delighting in the provision of God. And his words are so empty here. Notice verse 45. The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation? This is supposed to be humorous. Really, Saul? Jonathan's the only one leading around here. And he has saved us. And notice, far from it. Now, notice how his words just fall empty. I'm going to kill anyone who's done this, even Jonathan. And the people say, no, you're not. You're not going to do anything to Jonathan. And the text says they ransomed him. There is forgiveness with the people. There's forgiveness with God. But there is no forgiveness with Saul. But at the end of the day, whose words really matter? The people's words. And that's God's point. You wanted to be king all along. And by the way, you're still king. Even when Saul's king. Because you're calling the shots. Not Saul. You wanted this great king? Look how silly and plastic and artificial and rash and inconsistent he is. And now you're telling him what to do? God is laughing his head off at the people of Israel. Really? That's the king you want? No, you just want to be king. Because you're still calling the shots. And we see here with Saul, when I am king... I don't see my sin. Saul is blind to his heart. He is the reason this has happened. And when you're king, you become the standard. When I'm king, I'm the standard and everyone else is evaluated by me. Even God. There are some of you here today and you are judging God for what he's done in your life. Because you're the standard. And you say, God, you gave me this family. You, you gave me these morons to live with who wouldn't be miserable and angry all the time. This is your fault, God. God has sinned against you, and you're judging God. It surely couldn't be my fault. It surely couldn't be the sin in my own heart. I could never do anything wrong because you're the standard. And when you're the standard, you are aggressive in pursuing the sins of others. Just like Saul, whoever did this, they're going to die. And that's the way some of you live your life. You, you 
are so guilty and insecure about your own sin, you spend your days looking for the sins of others. And you're the standard. And you are the spotlight who is searching for someone else who has done something wrong. And your gaze is always on the sins of others. And you are aggressive with the sins of others. And, and your sin, there's no excuse for their sin. No excuse for their sin. Now my sin, I have some reasons, guys. There are some reasons I'm this way. Anybody would do the sins I do. But the sins you do, oh, there's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for your gossip. Now my immorality, there's some reasons for my immorality. But you shouldn't be gossiping about my immorality. Because I have reasons for it. You have no reasons to gossip about me. And that's the way we live our life. When we're the standard, when we're king. But when Jesus is king, everything is evaluated before him. And everybody's on level ground before him. It's all sin. There is so much sin in my heart when I am evaluated before Jesus and no one else that I don't have time to worry about anybody else's sin. I don't have time. When you are walking with Jesus and you see how loving he is and you're convicted about how unloving you are, you don't have time to point out other people who aren't doing this or that. You're so worried about your sin and repenting of your sin. When you see how merciful Jesus is, how kind he is, how courageous he is, how self-sacrificial he is, and you're, you're reminded, I'm so unmerciful. I'm, I, I, I don't have courage because you're comparing yourself to Jesus who is perfect, who is righteous, and you don't have time to point out what's going on with anyone else. But when you're king, you're the standard. But notice text continues, verse 46. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went their own way. Now notice how that ends. We're going to kill them. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to destroy anyone who's opposed against me, even if it's Jonathan. And he goes through all of that, and then he just ends up going home. And the Philistines leave. Do you see how fake and plastic Saul is? He's a Burger King king. He wants it his way, but he's a joke. He's a joke. And then something really interesting happens. Verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he routed them. And we go, what? Hold on. Saul is an incompetent king, and all of a sudden you're praising him for his military action. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't even seem to fit in the narrative. What's going on here? And, and notice, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now, we're going to see in the next few chapters, that's not exactly what happened with the Amalekites. And then in verses 49 through 51, we recount his genealogy. But notice how the chapter ends. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to him. And we say, isn't that a premature summary of his life? He, they're praising Saul. That makes no sense. Where does that come from? That, and it's to be ironic, we're to read that and go, that's not the whole story. 
There's a lot of sin and wickedness and competence underneath that summary of his life. Saul did build a great army. Army. He, he brought in valiant men who would fight for him. But the picture here is of a king that Israel wanted in appearance. And what God is saying to Israel is, you got your king. You got your king on the billboard with his sword and his crown. He smiled. He looked pretty. But he was a pathetic king. And yeah, he, he's got this legacy of these great military battles. But as we've read, who's really fighting the battles? Jonathan. It's not Saul. Jonathan is the one redeeming Saul's legacy behind the scenes. And he's saying to Israel, this is your fake plastic king. And it ends in this satire. It, what's going on here in this last section is the same thing we've seen at so many funerals. Have you ever been to the funeral and you see the pastor stand up and you just, you want to say, man, I don't know that the guy in the coffin is as good as what you're saying. You ever felt that way? You may not say it. I felt that way a lot. You'll probably feel that way at my funeral. But he starts reading the obituary. Oh, he was, and this is what they all say. Don't, don't say this. He smiled a lot. When a pastor says he smiled a lot, that means the pastor has no clue what's going on with the guy in the coffin. That's just something you say. And I will not do you the injustice of saying that about you at your funeral. And you go, hey, I don't think he smiled very much. I don't smile a lot. So if somebody says that at my funeral, you just stand up and say, liar. <laughs> but then they say, and he was a great family guy. And they read off the name of the wife and kids. And sometimes the wife is grabbing the chair. He worked all the time. He was never at home. Never came to my ball games. He was a great worker. We, we feel like we have to say good things about all those things in the obituary. And the employees, employers sitting there. Uh, he just showed up and went home every day. Wouldn't say he was a great worker. Wouldn't say he was all that at work. And then it's another thing people say. He's a good guy. That's when you don't know what else to say. He was a good guy. And his friends are going, hmm, you don't know what he did in college. And it's this awkward feeling where it's this plastic obituary. He was a, a, at Ashland Church. He was a member of FCA. And people go, I don't know the last time I saw him at any of those things. But we feel like we got to say something good at that time. That's the same thing going on with Saul here. That, that's the same thing that's happening. It, it's, it's supposed to be plastic because none of our obituaries are that good. And Saul's isn't either. It's fake. It's plastic. It's artificial. And that's what happens when I am king. When I am king, su success isn't always what it seems. When it's all about you and you live for your name and you live to be a good guy who smiles a lot and you live for people to say good things about you and you live in that fake plastic world, guess what? It's a fake plastic world because you're not that good. When Jesus is king, what you say is, man, you may say a lot of good things about me, but Jesus is better. 
Jesus is king, and I got a lot of failures, and I got a lot of flaws, and you're not trying to cover those up with a Facebook post. It's messy, and I'm a failure at a lot of things, but that's okay. Jesus isn't. And you know what your obituary reads when Jesus is king? Create it for Jesus. Saved by Jesus. Crucified with Jesus. Raised with Jesus. And as people look at your dead body in the box, you know what they say? Whatever all these other things that are good, and we need to say those, he's ruling with Jesus. And he couldn't do it himself because he's not king. That's what our obituary reads when Jesus is king. And next to Jesus, our obituary reads like promises of an elementary student council presidential campaign. They're silly if you try to hold them up without Jesus. They make no sense. But the good news for us today, Jesus is the one making the promises. Let's pray.